Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation about truth and beauty with Nobel physicist Frank Wilczek. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello, this is, this is Frank. Dr. Wilczek? Yes. Hi. Frank, hello. Hi. And this is, is that you say your name, Wilczek? Is that? Yeah, Wilczek is good. Is it? Ah. <clears throat> uh, where does that name originate? Is it Polish, maybe? Or? It's Polish. It's yeah. an Eastern European name. It means small wolf or wolf cub. Ah. It's actually a fairly common name. It's also it's the name of a, royals, a royal family in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Oh, so there's a Wilczek palace. There's a Wilczek <laughs> land, because uh-huh. Count Wilczek uh, bankrolled some expeditions near the North Pole. Have you, to, have you been there to the castle? <laughs> no, no, no. It's way above the Arctic Circle. You can only get there through with icebreakers. And okay. it's, owned by the, it's owned by the Russians. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy to have you um, on the other end of the microphone. Um, Thank you. And do you have any- to, yeah, it's good to talk to you. I, I've heard the show several times, and oh, I, I quite enjoy it oh, on Sunday thank morning. You. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Do you have it? I wondered if you have any questions for me before we start. Uh, not really. Uh, okay. Well, one thing I, I should have—I I wasn't really quick on the draw enough, but I just wrote a column for the Wall Street Journal that appeared Saturday that I thought might might be interesting <laughs> to oh. discuss. But <laughs> What's it, what was it about? Uh, it was about my experience I had at the uh, botanical in uh, Phoenix, the Desert Botanical Garden, uh-huh. there was an art exhibit called Fields of Light uh-huh. by Bruce Munro, which uh, consisted of acres of uh, on a, in the desert on a hillside of uh, lights <laughs> that uh, slowly pulsated, those thousands of lights. Uh, slowly pulsated asynchronously mm. in different colors and it was dark you know it was the nighttime and uh it just made me th- made me think in a different way about what um what it might be to wander inside a mind and what thought looks like because there wow. was so many it had a or kind of organic feel because of the the pulsing was roughly in the pace of breathing or heartbeat, mm. and the patterns were always changing. It, you know, we don't often get to see uh, what scientists call the combinatorial explosion, that there are so many possibilities, combina- so many ways of combining off and on in different colors mm. on that scale. And it was just, to me, it was awesome because mm. it brought together so many analogies and metaphors and ways of thinking about thinking and visualizing it. Uh, oh, it's, I suddenly thought that this this is what thought really is. I can <laughs> you can you can get inside it. Right. We, well did you um I wonder did you always have um like I know you grew up you were the your father was an electrical engineer, radio repairman. Yes. Um and it sounds like you had a a uh, a fascination with 
how things worked. I mean, I, there's this story you told somewhere about a coffee percolator that was one of your yes, early memories. That's, that's <laughs> my earliest memory, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Your earliest memory it's, altogether. It's, Yes, <laughs> it's pre-verbal. Uh-huh. I just remember picture. I just remember it in in pictures, kind of. of uh, but I remember very vividly sitting on my parents' uh, kitchen floor with a tile pattern, and uh, and we had a percolator, an old-fashioned coffee percolator, yeah. which had seven pieces, <laughs> and uh, you could take it, and they were big, so it was something I could manipulate, even though it was. Uh, you know, didn't have fine motor coordination or anything. And I, and I just was taking it apart, putting it back together, seeing that it could actually be done over and over again and that that uh, things would fit. And suddenly, somehow it was at that moment that I realized that, that there was a world outside and, and me inside and those were different things. And I don't know, it made a big impression on me. And I... I uh, still remember it very vividly. Well, you know, it's interesting just the story you you just started telling me about, you know, you talk about how you were very drawn to questions of meaning and drawn to philosophy early on and somehow always um, making these connections and and seeing these echoes and analogies. um, Even in the story you just told about the, where were you with the botanical... The Desert Botanical Garden. Desert in Botanical Garden. And so seeing the lights, and but then also thinking about you know the external world and the internal world. Yes. It seems like you've always made those connections. Yeah, I guess I have. <laughs> <laughs> something I'm just obsessed with some things, right? That, that's 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 definitely one of them. What is, what what is the connection between? Experience the inner world of consciousness and uh, sensation, and the external world, which kind of impinges on us, whether we like it or not, and uh, and has its own structure. Yeah, you know, I I um, I usually um, begin or very early in my interviews will inquire about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. Mm. I feel like. This discussion we just kind of organically leapt into is kind of an answer to that. Um, it's more. In, it's a. It's a. It's it's every bit as uh, as relevant an answer as a description of a religious upbringing. It goes very deep, right? I think touches on some of the same feelings and emotions. But yeah. of course, there's there's more and different in. Uh, in religious, common religious um, uh, communities and 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 uh, scriptures and and belief systems, then then this kind of um, universal spirituality. Yeah. And I've I've kind of been through both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've you know as I've as I've matured, I found. The um, the former, the the kind of symbolic thinking and uh, uh, trying to understand the inner world and the outer world and their connection uh, more satisfying and more lasting than the um, religious traditions, although those are very interesting too and can uh, so I, uh, yeah. 
it's all interesting. Yeah. Everything, yeah. everything is interesting, yeah. but, but but somehow the uh, for as far as truth value is concerned, I think the truth value of uh, of things like science and physics is much more assured than the truth value of scriptures. And um, you know, I think we can look at at human history and human cultures and see that a lot of beauty. A lot of um, aesthetic beauty has been brought into the world um, in religious traditions, music and architecture and calligraphy. And but but you, so but I would and I would say, and I don't want to stretch this too far because you are a scientist, and I'm going to I'm talking to you as a scientist. But there's, you know, I was saying, in a sense, you you take up this question in your your um, your most recent book, which was published in 2015, a beautiful question. Um, which I would almost say it, 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 it could almost be a theological question, which you take up as a scientist, you know, and you, you, um, you say this is a long meditation on a single question. Does the world embody beautiful ideas? Yes, <laughs> and, and I that's wanna, what it is. Yeah, and I want to ask and, you also, for you, is that question a, a variation or a corollary or, or an alternative to the, to the question that is more Commonly, that question is more commonly stated. You know, does the world have meaning? Does does it all mean anything? Well, to me, it's 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 clearly related. It's in the same family. It has some kind of the same feeling about it. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's much more addressable. And uh, I don't know what it would mean to say what the meaning of the world is. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what an answer could possibly look like. But uh, if we ask this question, which sort of has the same feeling about it, does the world embody beautiful ideas? I think we can we can get quite far in in finding illuminating answers, and and it's a very satisfying discussion because hmm. the there's there's a lot of positive evidence. It's not that. So there's some medical, metaphysical. No, it's physical evidence, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's a truth uh, that uh, that rules the world. Yeah. Beauty is a human, uh, to me at least, is a human experience. It's something that has to do with uh, how humans react to the world and 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 perceive the world. Uh, but it can also be, st- and it's notoriously thought to be. Subjective, but it's not entirely subjective. There's a very rich history of art objects and music and what people have found beautiful and literature. And we can compare that to what scientists find in their deep investigation of what the world is and see not whether those things coincide. They clearly don't coincide. There are forms of beauty that are not found in science. And there are facts about the world that are not beautiful. But there's a remarkable intersection, I think, and a remarkable overlap between the concepts of beauty that you find in art and literature and music and things that you find as the deepest themes of our understanding of the physical world. Well, and, you know, I don't think I've interviewed any, say, group of people across my years of interviewing who use the word beauty more or who have a deeper reverence for beauty than people who work with mathematics. Yeah, and, and, and I'm one. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and many, and 
you know, several of the most important episodes in my scientific career have been driven not in a vague way, but very concretely by wanting to make things beautiful. Uh, I remember um, almost a magical moment when I was speaking with one of my colleagues after a seminar, trying to figure out what this seminar meant. It was about fractional charge. And uh, just, it was, uh, it was a very difficult seminar to understand. Neither of us really did. But then I, I tried to write an equation which captured the way it should work, and the equation almost wrote itself. And, and it, it was just so pretty that I knew it had to be correct, and that turned <laughs> out to be the key yeah. to a very important investigation that you know, mm. it's still, still ramifying through physics. Uh, so that was one experience. Another experience was with the origin of our theory of the strong interaction. We went through uh, all kinds of uh, difficulties in, in relating the equations that we th thought might describe the strong interaction to uh, uh, basic facts about the world. There are many paradoxes, contradictions almost, that, that seemed to uh, be a barrier to these equations being correct. Uh, but the equations were so beautiful, and some of their consequences were so compelling that uh, we didn't want to give up on them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we insisted on, on that. And you stick to this theory. You have to, it's, if you don't understand it, it's your problem. <laughs> and, uh, and that turned out to be the right thing to do. And, and, uh, and all, that... all the difficulties proved to be uh, superficial, and eventually we overcame them. But yeah. if we didn't have faith in the beauty of, uh, of, the phys of the physical world, that the explanation would ultimately be compelling and beautiful, uh, it would have been very easy to give up. It would have been very sensible to give up, actually. That, your work on the strong interaction um, was, was what won you the Nobel Prize, is that correct, in 2004? Yes. That's the work. Um, I want to just mention a few things before we keep going. That you know, you one of the things you do is you propose different language for some of the language that gets um, that is more standard, like the standard model of physics. Um, and yes. I think I think you always and I want to say this. I, I I think you know you instead of standard model, you propose working with the language of core theory, which um, I, I think in every case where you rename things, it's also more elegant. And, Thank you. and poetic and and also more precise at the same time, language. Um, well, I think naming things is extremely important. Yes. And not, not only me, some of my great heroes in physics, and for that matter also in philosophy, thought very, very hard and took it very, very seriously naming things. A lot of letters, correspondence of Faraday is concerned with uh, what names he should give to the things he was discovering. And... Um, a lot of our terminology come, that we still use comes out of that. And, whereas uh, some modern terminology like uh, top quark and bottom quark, and, you know, that's not so good. Well, even quark, not so good. <laughs> Although quark came, didn't quark came from James <laughs> Joyce? Didn't, wasn't that a literary, literary illusion? Yeah, quark is, yeah. is from... Um, Finnegan's Wake, yeah. I think. Yeah, three quarters. What is it you call more. gravity? Instead of gravity, you speak of ge geometry encoding fluids. Is that right? 
Well, instead of fields, there's fields a, there's of gravity. A, yeah. Instead of fields, I talk about fluids. Because, yes. Well, fields. Well, this gets a little technical, but but fields is used for two different things in physics, which is really unsatisfactory. It's used for the entities that fill space and do things, and it's also used for the values that those entities take. And that that's a subtle distinction, but very important. And mm. if you use the same word for those two different things, it causes no end of confusion. Uh, most physicists don't seem to be bothered by it because we're familiar with it. But but when you try to explain things to other people, it's it's it can be. I've seen it be very confusing. So, at the risk of being pedantic, I <laughs> introduced a new word for one of the uses, which is goes back to the original use that. Uh, original terminology that people like Faraday and Maxwell, who invented these things, used, and called the uh, the substance itself the, a fluid, like the okay. electromagnetic fluid, whereas the, its values are things like electric fields and magnetic fields. I so in, in outer space, for instance, where the magnetic, the value of the magnetic field is zero, the magnetic fluid is still there, and it's ready to mm. be excited and move around if 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 if, if uh, stimulated. Uh, so those are two very different concepts, and not keeping them separate is really confusing. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that mm. explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think when one talks about mathematical beauty or beauty as mm. revealed through mathematics and physics, that mm. can sound lofty and abstract to. Um, to many people, um, yes. you make a wonderful observation uh, that I think is just so so useful in terms of letting people in, um, which is that uh, our brains are attuned to the deep structure of the physical world in ways that we that we don't even can't even begin to grasp but that we so so that for example you say each of us and when it comes to beauty and our perception of beauty or our perception of reality in fact our perception of the physical world you say each of us is born to become an accomplished if unconscious practitioner of projective geometry <laughs> so explain that's what right. you're that's describing that's right that's one of our most it. impressive abilities yeah that uh, humans, children, do routinely without thinking about it, although they have to learn it, or parts of it, uh, and yet we can't, we cannot, have not been able to treat to teach sophisticated computing machines, computers to do it. That is, humans do an astonishing feat routinely and very quickly. Uh, that is, they interpret the messages coming through little, little openings in their eyes and projected on a two-dimensional screen, the retina at the back, uh, which then get turned, the, the, the light gets turned into electrical signals. And from that crazy scrambled encoding, we reconstruct an, an external world of three-dimensional objects in space uh, we recognize that if we move our head, they're still the same objects, and we can we abstract we determine these effortlessly. We recon- we do a, a a job which is well, um, it literally is impossible. We use all kinds of tricks and rules of thumb to to, to guess what what the external world is, and sometimes it's wrong with optical yeah, right. illusions. But basically, 
in most circumstances, we do this remarkable feat of reconstructing a three-dimensional world from two-dimensional information that's all scrambled up with things on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, Through these eyes that we just a, take for granted, completely and we utterly take, it take for, for granted. granted. And, 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 uh, <laughs> but, our, our, it, but nature has equipped us with extraordinary abilities in geometry. I had the... Well, I, I knew this abstractly, but in preparing the book, I decided I should I should actually learn something about perspective and projective geometry, and it was a real revelation. I, I'm I'm terrible at drawing, just terrible, mm. uh, the worst person I've ever met. But but I I learned some of the rules of perspective that artists use, and they are just so beautiful. They're so elegant, they, and and using them, I was ina- I was empowered to create accurate kind of buildings and, and town squares and so forth. I just astonished myself <laughs> with uh, things that, of course, you know, uh, I could do passively. I could certainly recognize scenes and so forth, but, but I didn't know how I did it. And uh, now, and I wasn't able to reproduce it sort of consciously. But now, with with knowledge, I was able to 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 do it, and and it was just magic to, to make these to suddenly see these things emerging from from uh, geometric constructions, and it looks like the external world. And, and it it had a tremendous effect psych- historically and psychologically uh, when these rules were discovered in the Italian Renaissance. It's one of the things that really powered the Renaissance. The artists took enormous joy in their sudden ability to render the world the way it actually looked. But that is so interesting, again, to make that, to, to, to point that out, that what we, I mean, most of us would, it would be impossible to think about creating perspective, which is essentially creating three-dimensional image on two-dimensional space. But we yes. don't realize that we do that in our, every when we open our eyes constantly without being aware of it and how complex and amazing that yes. is. Yes. But then, and people who started to work on artificial intelligence thought, at the beginning, that it would all be trivial because it's so easy. <laughs> we don't we don't have to work very hard. Right. They thought that would be very easy, whereas, say, teaching a computer to play chess would be very difficult. But it's turned out to be just the opposite. Right. The, the things that that uh, we do unconsciously and are part of our our daily lives and are important for survival are things we're really, really good at. Mm. And it should have been obvious, really, in retrospect, because so much of our brain is devoted to visual processing. There has to be something going on there. And hmm. so, I, so symmetry is an important notion in the perception of beauty, um, and for the human brain. Um, and I, I want to tease out, I, I believe, and I want to make sure I get this right, that, that I, you're saying that Einstein's kind of what you say, call his new style in physics um, helped bring s- symmetry home in a sense or underscored, helped us understand the importance of symmetry or symmetry as, a, as an aspect of, of reality. How would you say that? Uh, can you hear me? Oh. Something's Hello? Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought oh. he stopped abruptly, but I didn't know he was gone. Uh, c- can you hear me now? Oh, yes, I can. Yes, yeah, I can. Yeah, okay. So something something happened. Here. Well, I kind of uh, thought you'd 
I thought you ended your sentence quite abruptly, but I didn't know you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry, but we're we're. So do you want to repeat the question? You or? know, I think um, I think that was I think that was fine. So did you hear my question about symmetry? Yes, the Einstein? question was about symmetry yes. and Einstein. Yes. So, so uh, what was it that I, what so was it that Einstein brought that helped um, illuminate this um, more completely for us? Well, symmetry, as used in common language, is kind of a vague word. It means uh, balance, harmony, yeah. uh, goodness. <laughs> Somehow it has nice connotations. Yeah, I like the way you said it's also it's fairness. Fa- we, the, we, even fairness, symmetry, ethical yes. symmetry we look for. Yeah. Yes. Uh, proportion. Uh, but in science, we, use a, we need to have a more precise concept, and the and uh, the concept that we use that's more precise, that has something in common with the, with the common usage, but is a special case of it and gets amplified in different directions, is that s- symmetry in physics and mathematics means change without change. Now, that seems kind of mysterious and mystical, but it, it, it means something very concrete. Uh, let's talk about it in the in a couple of cases. Mm-hmm. So, so one case is uh, an important fact about the physical laws that we know, then everything in physics and science depends on it in some way, is that they don't change with time. In the fundamental equations, that's formulated as a symmetry that says that if you change the equations by advancing time, the laws don't change. Right. They might have changed, but in fact, they don't change. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity is a very much deeper, uh, or at least uh, less obvious application of that kind of uh, idea of change without change. It says that if you ride by the world at a constant velocity, any constant velocity... Uh, although things will look different, so some things will be coming at you, other things will be moving away uh, faster, and uh, the never. However, in this, the, the same physical laws will apply to this new uh, configuration of the world. Mm-hmm. So you can make a change in the way everything looks, and but you don't change uh, the laws. Uh, a simpler example would um, might be helpful here. Uh, we, we're used to the idea that a circle is a very symmetrical object. What does that have to do with change without change? Well, a circle is an object that you can rotate around its center by any angle. And although it might have changed, and every point, in fact, moves, the circle as a whole does not, not move. And that's what makes it symmetric. If you take a, a more lopsided shape and you rotate it, there's no way it won't come back to itself uh, until you go all the way around. So if you take an equilateral triangle, it'll come around after you turn it one-third of the way. So it has some symmetry, but much less than a circle. So uh, that's a concept, change without change, things that might have changed but don't, that turns out, that picks out special kinds of objects like circles it also picks out special kinds of theories like special relativity and special kinds of equations, equations that you can manipulate and make changes on without changing their consequences. It turns out that very symmetric laws 
are laws that are seem to be the laws that nature likes. Mm. Nature likes laws mm. and likes equations that support enormous possibilities for transformation where things look different, get different names, and different situations are described, but the same equations apply. In fact, yes. in recent physics, uh, that's how we've guessed the equations. <laughs> we guess equations that have enormous amounts of symmetry, work out their consequences, and see if they describe the world. It's right. That kind of guesswork is how we got the theory of the strong interactions. And I previously, I mentioned that uh, we had faith in them despite difficulties because they, because they were so beautiful and compelling. And an important part of their beauty was their symmetry. So right. That's, I, um, that's the way it works. Frank, we, there's something. My engineer uh, is saying we need to check something on your end, technical. Okay. They're gonna they're gonna come in. Sure. Sorry. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. And this is seated correctly, but yes, they are. Okay. We'll keep our ears out for it. Okay. He didn't find any difficulty. Okay. <laughs> Everything seems to be seated pretty well, so we'll just proceed and keep our ears open for this. Okay. Can we go again? All right. I'm fine. Yeah. It, is it is it right? Did I read that you lived, you owned and lived in the house Einstein lived in in Princeton? Yes, yes. Throughout the nineteen nineties, we, uh, we did. So that yeah. would have been the house where he invited Marian Anderson to come stay when she came to sing in Princeton, and it was a segregated city, and she couldn't stay in any of the nice hotels. Uh, yes, that was the house. All right. Yeah. Amazing. It's a nice house. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad she it's, had a nice place to stay, and so did you. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's actually, it doesn't look large from the street, but it's very, mm. very long. It's a big house mm. and uh, has a beautiful yard. Yeah, I liked it very much. Mm. Um, I, I want to actually point out that you, there was a piece in on December 31st in the Wall Street Journal where they they asked a number of thinkers what to expect in 2016 and that you predicted yeah. that we would soon detect gravitational waves, which, again, you yes. I feel more poetically called tremors in space-time. Um, <laughs> and, in fact, you right. were proven correct very soon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I didn't have any inside information, but no. I did know what was publicly available, that this instrument was uh, going to acquire enough sensitivity to plausibly detect sources that were very likely to be out there in the universe. And uh, so I wasn't completely confident that it would be found in, the year, in a year. I was very confident it would be found in a few years. Yeah. But as it happened, it, it was a matter of months after yeah. I made the prediction. That, um, was it, and that, it's a great event for physics. And right. The was that an exciting day for you? Is it... What was that like? Yeah, definitely. Uh -huh. Because yeah, uh, it's uh, it was a, a beautiful, a p poetic day because mm -hmm. many narratives come together. It was a hundred years ago that Einstein, from very kind of abstract uh, intuitions of beauty and coherence, wrote down the modern equations for gravity, his general relativity theory. Uh, which has and, and has been the pattern for many of our successful theories later, uh, 
including our theory of the strong interaction. Uh, but uh, the uh, but and it, but the effects that and and this give a new picture of what gravity is due to, and it's due to warpings in space and time. An extraordinary concept that space and time themselves can be bent. Mm. Uh, and then, as part of it, the kind of excitations in space and time can take on a life of their own. Those are gravitational waves that move out, spread like ripples on a pond to far away. And you could, in, so in principle, things that happen way over there can transmit through these waves information very far away, like light waves, but it's a different kind of thing you're sensitive to. Uh, and uh, but the effects were predicted to be so small that uh, Einstein himself had no hope that they would ever be detected. It's another part of the extraordinary progress in physics that we've learned. The technology has advanced so that we can detect extraordinarily small, subtle effects. Mm. Uh, the effect that was being that's measured in these gravitational waves is a change in the length between two mirrors, well, actually several mirrors. You have to have several so that you can do various checks. Uh, but a change in, in the relative distance between these two mirrors, which are pairs of mirrors that are four kilometers apart, and the, the amount of the change in their distance is about one one-thousandth of the diameter of a proton. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Unbelievably small right. uh, displacements. Of, and, uh, of course, you don't measure one proton. You measure many, many protons mm-hmm. and take an average, so it makes sense. But, but uh, the fact that, that physics has advanced to the point where you can master mm. nature so well as to detect such tiny effects reliably is just an extraordinary tribute to how well we've come to understand and kind of many in your lifetime that advance and that that change yes mm-hmm. yeah no it's actually scary i mean you mm. know it's uh 100 years to uh 100 years back to the uh origin of the prediction of gravitational waves and i've lived more through more than half of that <laughs> Um, somewhere you describe. I still think of myself as a kid, but well, it ends yeah. up, you know. <laughs> um, well, aging has changed in that hundred years too. So you're much younger yeah. than you would have been if you were living right. in Einstein's age. Um, it, it, so somewhere you say this is against such helpful imagery. You know, you say Einstein describes space time as elastic and not rigid, and then you describe it as a ubiquitous cosmic jello. I think those are your yes. words rather than his. Yes, but yes. it's a, it's an yes. image that's helpful. Yeah, I think so. I, I've tried to, I'd like to try to think very concretely, although mm-hmm. you know, evident, to really be accurate in, in modern physics, we deal with very, very abstract concepts that are far removed from daily life. But I always try to visualize it in many different ways, including way, uh, things that are very uh, lowbrow. Yeah, right, <laughs> like Jello. Okay, so yes. so so um, let's go let's go deep and profound again. Um, hmm. You you talk about Niels Bohr's notion of c- complementarity yes. as something you've come to treasure, and he was, of course, a yeah. Danish physicist and philosopher and uh, an interlocutor of Einstein. <laughs> yes. you could say. Um, oh, he's I, one of the great 
pioneers of quantum mechanics. Yeah, and yeah. quantum mechanics. Yeah. And, um, He's one of the few people you could think of as Einstein's peer. One yeah. of, right, right. Um, and they had a complex right, it was like a relationship in terms of, uh, it seems, huge reverence for each other, but also yes. often disagreeing kind of profoundly. Yes, they both had deep intuitions about how the world should work. And they weren't uh, the same intuitions. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, Niels, well, to, to oversimplify quite a bit, I would say Niels Bohr had a very humanistic interpretation. Uh, he thought that physics was about describing human knowledge, human knowledge of the world, mm -hmm. whereas Einstein thought more at the level of God's knowledge. He often talked that way. It's very majestic. It's very majestic yes. and kind of uh, humans are just observers of this pre-existing uh, harmony and they, 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 should, they should be awestruck and humble. But not. Uh, but it's it, their role was passive, not not mm -hmm. in the. In, 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 but in almost, the, you know, to yeah. that to that give and take, that 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 seeming conflict, which in fact was as much collegial as it was con conflicted. Yeah. You know, you you have such an interesting way of talking about complementarity that I feel is evocative in human terms as well as scientific terms. And I just like to so one of the things you say is that in ordinary reality, in ordinary time and space, the opposite of a truth is a falsehood. But you say deep propositions have a meaning that goes beyond their surface. <laughs> this is so interesting. You can recognize a deep truth by the feature that its opposite is also a deep truth. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the the, but, the conflicts was is light a particle or wave, and in fact, it is both. Um, it's both, and it's both, uh, right. sometimes it's useful to think of it one way. Sometimes it's useful to think of it another way. Uh -huh. And uh, both ways of thinking are valid in their own terms. Both can be informative in different circumstances. But it's very difficult, in fact, impossible to apply them both at once. To apply them both at the and same I think time. That, that's the essence of complementarity. Uh -huh. You have to view the world in different ways to do it justice. And the different ways can each be very rich, can each be internally consistent, can each have its own language and rules, but they may be mutually incompatible. And to do full justice to reality, you have to take both of them into account. Somewhere you say, yeah, complementarity is both a feature of physical reality and a lesson in wisdom. And I think yes. just what you just said about reality uh, is equally true of, and I know you have to be careful to do too much of this, stretching these things, but it's equally true of, of human, the human condition. Oh, very much so. Oh, I think so. I, when, when people ask me what my religion is, I say I'm a complementarian. Right. I just believe. Yeah. I believe that it's really interesting and really fun and really informative and the right thing to do to be able to look at things in different ways mm -hmm. and appreciate there are different ways of looking at things that uh, each have their own validity and. They may conflict if you try to apply them both at once, but 
okay, that's fine. You apply one at a time right. and try to appreciate both. And in, in terms of this, um, you know, I, I, I have spoken with physicists who, who, who will say, you know, of course they take their daily perceptions seriously on some level. They understand that essentially what we perceive to be a reality is full of illusion, and including the perception that we have freedom and choice. But, you know, you also present this as another piece of complementarity, two things that in fact are true, uh, each at the same time, or each each true, but perhaps each. but hard to t- speak about in the same moment, you, you know, that yes, you as I a human being are nothing but a collection of particles and light, and you are a thinking, feeling human being. <laughs> Yes, I, I think those are both true, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, they are different ways of organizing uh, our experience of the world, and each one tells us important things. Each one can be very useful in certain applications, uh, but they're very difficult to apply simultaneously because they're just from different worlds. It's... it's uh, mm. Yeah. Well, it's it's like things I can definitely point to in in physics and mathematics, where this is not just uh, a vague idea, but a theorem. You know, you can you can think of something as a particle, or you can think of it as a wave, and either description can be very rich and full, but you can't do it both at the same time. They're math, they're inconsistent. And so I you think, just have to live. There, then there's some virtue, some intelligence in living with that. Yes. That seeming impossibility yes. or contradiction, which I guess human beings don't like. Right? We don't like that kind well, of uncertainty. You, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can come to like it. Yeah. If you, you yeah. And, and, yeah. And that's, I think that's, as I said, I think that's a bit of wisdom, as, as, a, uh, as mm-hmm. a, an important part of wisdom. Is to, There's uh, an, one, one aspect of it is just to be able to put yourself in the other fellow's shoes. Yes. Right? Think of it. <laughs> Uh, right. But it applies it much more broadly. Yeah. Um, you have another notion, and, and I may be stretching to to bring it in in this context, of entangled histories, which yes. is very evocative. Um, yes. You know, somewhere you said, choose your own adventure books are fun, but they have nothing on quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this is something that I've been working on uh, very recently and mm-hmm. continue to work on. Uh, well, it gets a little bit technical, but but basically, uh, in the way people have been have dealt with quantum mechanics, they've emphasized the notion of a state and an observation on a state, which is telling you how things, how something uh, is at a given time. So it's in a given state at a given time. You measure its properties in that state, and if you want to do a measurement in a diff- uh, later or to diff- you, you 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 can't have a state and you can't have a measurement. So you're looking at a photon, for example. In, you're, you're, yeah. Okay. Uh, but sometimes, but in in uh, in constructing a complete description of the world, and there are other things that don't fit very naturally into that kind of uh, framework. There may be situations in which you don't know the state of a particle. Uh, at one time, or it's stayed at another time, but you know something about the relationship between those states. 
Uh, and so in that context, it's, it's more natural to talk about histories and uh, the po- instead of classifying how a system is in terms of states, to describe it in terms of histories. And the histories can have properties that are very difficult to describe in terms of, uh, would be very awkward to describe in terms of the prop- if you slice it up and, and divide it into states as a function of time. And one of those is this notion of entangled histories. And basically what it is is a mathematically uh, – I've come to realize. I didn't realize this at first. But, but what it is is I think a mathematically precise version of the intuition that many physicists have had called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. That the uh, formalism of quantum mechanics, its wave functions, contain a much mi- richer universe than the universe that any – person observes uh, and uh, the notion of entangled histories is that it captures that by saying there are many many there are different possibilities for how a system could have evolved that are mutually incompatible but yet have the same beginning state and the same end state and you can mathematically prove that the only way to get from that beginning to that end is by the world diverging in different paths so, and then okay, later so, coming together. So rather than uh, this idea we would have that some other history or chronology would break off and be someplace else over there, you, this idea is that there are maybe multiple chronologies that actually interact yeah, they inter- they can be brought back together. Right. For small systems, for big systems, mm-hmm. they it rapid they rapidly get so so different that they can't meaningfully be brought back together mm-hmm. again. But in small systems, you can observe that you get contributions from these incompatible histories. <laughs> and that again is just so evocative. Um, yeah. That well, you can't I actually I make some, it, right that you can't actually make sense of the past or of the state that you're trying to describe. Without well, factoring the, in different, different. The way different I would realities. put it is yeah. that the quantum mechanical notion of history, just like the, no, mo, the quantum mechanical notion of state, is different from the classical notion and richer. Mm. And just as we've had to wrestle with the notion of what quantum mechanical reality is at the level of states, I think we also get to wrestle with it again and learn new, fascinating aspects of reality that philosophers never dreamed of. By uh, by examining how quantum mechanical quantum mechanics works at the level of history, you know, you use words a lot like paradoxical, crazy, <laughs> strange <laughs> to describe reality and and what you study. And it seems yeah. to me that those words also go together with beauty, right? That 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 the richness of it is uh, is is also in con- in notions like that. Yes. Well, one of my notions about the concept, the human concept of beauty, is that something. It's something that ev- beautiful things are something that are things that evolution has uh, primed us to enjoy and want to come back to and feel pleasure in experiencing. Mm. And mm. one thing that uh, has that nature is learning things that are useful in getting around in the world. So we, things we can learn from, new experiences that that. Uh, can uh, help us 
in other endeavors uh, give us pleasure. And uh, learning about the world and learning about how strange it is and then... But and being taken in, by surprise in ways that being taken by us surprise, that we couldn't have imagined things, before. Learning things yeah. is expanding your, uh, con- your concepts, your power, yeah. your appreciation of the world. So I think that's... That is beautiful. It's intrinsically beautiful mm. to learn things. It's pleasurable, yeah. Especially if they're surprising, because then you get to expand your mind. You know, one of my favorite uh, stories about Einstein and Bohr is that, of course, there was that phrase of Einstein, which <clears throat> people sometimes quote as though he's talking about God, but he was actually talking about quantum physics, right? And where he said God, <laughs> where he says God does thing. not play dice with the universe, and yes. that Bohr came back and said, "Who is Einstein to tell God what to do?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Einstein, uh, on many occasions, uh, turned out to be a pretty reliable messenger of what God was intending to. But in, I think in that case, he was way off base, actually. Yeah. If you think, I mean, this is often presented as a kind of very obscure debate and so, but actually, if you think about what happens at a a, a modern particle physics accelerator like uh, the LHC, or even better, its predecessor, the L, the LEP, the Electron Positron Collider, what happens at an accelerator like that is that people do the same thing over and over again. They collide electrons and positrons with exactly the same properties, exactly the same energy, many, many times. And you get different results each time. You get different (laughs) kinds of things come out of the reactions. So, um, you know, Einstein said, uh, or was reputed to say, I guess it's disputed whether he actually said it. But he's famous for having said. Something like it. it, (laughs) He's famous for having said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different answer. It's so good. But that's exactly what happens. Yes. (laughs) That's exactly what happens. Even with this, (laughs) with him. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. You you say in... um, in your book, um, a beautiful question <laughs> that and you're, you're, that if there is a creator, if you if you were to ponder it in that way, that that creator is an artist above all. <laughs> yes, that's that's I think that's mm-hmm. yes, that's what I think maybe the the, mm-hmm. the most poetic way of stating this conclusion that the world, in large part, does embody beautiful ideas. Mm-hmm. That um, if you regard the world as a work of art. Uh, first of all, it helps you understand things, and secondly, it's a pretty good—it's uh, a pretty good work of art. It's a very ritual work of art. You can find, uh, it's very surprising. It has tremendous beauty. It has tremendous uh, creative power in using a few principles to make elaborate structures. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I—I mm. I was thinking as I was preparing to speak with you that. Um, mm. I, I had an interview years ago. It was it was really in the early post nine eleven years, with um, a Muslim scholar, a great Muslim legal scholar, and kind of jur- jurisprudence in Islam is what theology is in in Judaism and mm-hmm. Christianity. And he was a jurisprud he was a he was a legal scholar, and then a rabbi. And uh, there is a notion in Islam that beauty is a core moral value. Are you familiar with that? And that 
I'm not, but what I am familiar with uh-huh. is that uh, mosque interiors are among, to me, that yeah. means among the most exuberant expressions of symmetry yes. and celebrations of uh, concepts that turn out to be central to the deep description of the world. It's very impressive. Yeah, and, and of course, they're just beautiful to look at. Right, yeah. and I, but I think it's a it's a reflection of a deep of a deep piece of theology and. Um, you know, the rabbi came back with this notion that's in the Hebrew Bible about the beauty of holiness. Um, and they t- we had this amazing discussion that night about, uh, you know, t- taking on the, the very serious and heavy conflicts in which religion is not just involved but implicated. Yes. Um, but imagining beauty as a litmus test of whether something is of God. And then, you know, they had a very complex, actually, understanding of beauty, that it's creative and not destructive, um, that it's a, f- it's a beauty of wholeness, not fractionalizing. Mm. Well, I think it would be a very healthy thing as well as a very rewarding thing yeah. for uh, religious traditions to focus on, the, well, where they'd it, find a lot of common ground and also rich yeah. possibilities. Uh, in exploring uh, the concept of beauty. And I think it would also be uh, very uh, helpful and very healthy and and very stimulating uh, to bring in science there because science, has, especially modern physics, has taught us some really, really surprising and wonderfully imaginative and uh, beautiful and fantastic uh, Things that are aspects of the actual physical world, that are, mm-hmm. and presumably in a religious interpretation, are aspects of God's work that are by no means obvious, and you really have to expand your mind to appreciate them. Yeah. And to me, at least, it gives a really a real feeling of spiritual growth and and depth when I when I deal with these concepts. There's a there's a passage in uh, a beautiful question. I, I just want to read it. It's it's a beautiful passage, and I, it kind of gets at this. You know, it's a, it's a scientific corollary to that idea of beauty as a litmus test, as a guide. Mm-hmm. Um, even in for you, in terms of what science science's limits and imperfections, like you say, despite its overwhelming virtues, the core theory is imperfect. Indeed, precisely because it is such a faithful description of reality, we must, in pursuit of our question, hold it to the highest aesthetic standards. So scrutinized, the core theory reveals flaws. Its equations are lopsided, and they contain several loosely connected pieces. Furthermore, the core theory does not account for so-called dark matter and dark energy. Although those tenuous forms of matter are negligible in our immediate neighborhood, they persist in the interstellar and intergalactic voids and thereby come to dominate the overall mass of the universe. For these and other reasons, we cannot remain satisfied. And then you say, having tasted beauty at the heart of the world, we hunger for more. In this quest, there is, I think, no more promising guide than beauty itself. Yes. Well, I mean, I put my money where my mouth is. (laughs) I have theories for what the dark matter is that I think are are certainly driven by beauty. Mm. And uh, Mm. we'll see if they're true. But in recent experience, and I have theories about uh, states of matter that I'm 
very confident are correct, that they're driven by beauty but haven't yet been uh, uh, verified experimentally. It's what drives a lot, most of my, oh, a lot of my work in physics is trying to get more beautiful equations and a more coherent description of how things work. Uh, so that's that's how I work, and it's it's uh, it's been successful in the past yeah. <laughs> quite a bit, and, and so it has a good record not only in my work but in the work of uh, my community and colleagues. So um, well, let's call. I, I think we're on a roll, and let's hope it keeps going. You, um, George Dyson, said something um, when he's looking at your book that you've. That you kind of you kind of in the in the lineage of natural philosophy that was before was there it existed before we we what we now just call science um, and I think you yes I feel that you know, way do you, yeah and I really hear <laughs> I'm that a throwback and, right? yes yes and and that in fact I mean that gets a bit at the what we spoke about in the very beginning you know this quest for meaning or these questions of meaning that help draw you into science and and then in fact that is there on scientific frontiers. And it's where it's often not acknowledged um, or analyzed. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it has dangers. I mean, yeah, it has dangers of woolly thinking and wishful thinking and uh, denial of facts that you don't like. But but I, I, I think yeah. it, 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 it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater not to realize that that's really. <laughs> A central element of human life, and should be a central element of uh, of the scientific and uh, uh, worldview, to to try to understand things whole and bring everything together, and use what you learn about the physical world to inform your view of the world as a whole. It uh, you have to use it perhaps in the spirit of complementarity, not try to. Uh, Tie it up neatly. Not not yeah. try to use it to deny other ways of looking at things, yeah. but to appreciate them all uh, in, in in different aspects and enrich your concept of what reality is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's woolly if you are you working with a simplistic uh, form or definition of what it, the search exactly. for meaning. Just like beauty can be a woolly concept if you're using it simplistically and superficially. Exactly. So the challenge is to. Uh, Use them creatively and precisely, and to stretch them and test them, and, and uh, you know, push them as hard as they can, and see yeah. as you can, and see if if they keep holding up and keep working and keep being creative and fruitful. And so, for for the for just our, our last um, few minutes here, I I want to um, I I pulled out some observations you make, some insights you have. Um, about this way that you you know you see the world, you see reality and truth, and also are always, I think, in some way, bringing together these profound human quests for both understanding reality and and having a sense of meaning. Um, and one of them, uh, and I just wonder if you just kind of bring us in a little bit to this way of okay. seeing. So, so for example, you talk about how Newton had described each, spec- each spectral color as distinct. Yes. But in the next chapter of, of physics, um, there was this discovery of a, a you know, as you say, a, a deep unity beneath and supporting the diversity of appearance. And you said, all colors are one thing 
this is what we learned. All colors are one thing yes. seen in different states of motion. And that is science's brilliant, brilliantly poetic answer to Keats' complaint that science unweaves a rainbow. So explain what that means, that all colors are one thing seen in different states of motion. Yes, well, this comes back to the theory of relativity. According to the theory of relativity, if you uh, move past the world at a constant velocity, things look different, but the same laws apply. Uh, and that means that if you see one thing uh, when you're at rest and another thing when you're moving, uh, you can those two things are really the same thing. <laughs> Uh, uh, because they obey the related laws. And uh, in the theory of relativity, when you apply it to light, uh, we have a very well-developed theory of what light is based on electromagnetism, and that's part of what drove the theory of relativity in the first place. There are many tests and so forth. So, but, so what you learn in the theory of relativity is that it, when you look at light, a light beam of a different color... Uh, and you're moving towards it, it gets shifted towards the blue end of the rainbow. So mm-hmm. so if it was red, it might become yellow or green or, or blue or ultra, ultraviolet if you're moving fast enough. And if you're moving away, there's what's called the red shift. It, things move towards the opposite end of the rainbow. Towards, and so say- all these colors are real. can be derived from one of them by moving at an appropriate velocity. So really, the existence of one implies the existence of of all the others, and the properties of one imply the properties of all the others. So in a really deep sense, they are the same thing. Mm. But in a complementary sense, if you don't move, they're all different. So. And but and also is was is it right that the red shift that this perception was part of what helped us understand that the um that the institute that institute that the that the universe is um expanding. It's expanding. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is the central uh observation that led to the picture of an expanding universe. And that is you find that uh, uh well, we should backtrack one step. Atoms typically emit light of characteristic wavelength. So neon signs, for instance, like to emit red, famous neon gas. When it's heated, it likes to emit red. Uh, what, what was discovered is that the uh, characteristic wavelengths of, uh, of things seen in distant galaxies was systematically shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. Mm. And that can be interpreted as the fact that we're moving away from them, or mm. they're moving away from us. But in any case, the fir- and the further they go, the further away you look, the faster they're moving. So uh, mm. this was discovered in kind of primitive form in the twenties, and since then it's become very, very well established. And now is a, a rich technique for for inferring the size and shape of the universe and where things are in them. Mm. I, I said to you earlier on that your question. Uh, does the world embody beautiful ideas? You know, almost could sound like a theological question. And and, and you have, you have an observation um, that that reminds me of, you know, for example, the theological observation of like a Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, one of the great public theologians of the 20th century, talking about how the great 
struggle of human life and is this anxiety that we feel because we're torn between our experience of mortality and our perception of eternity. And, you know, you said, we humans are poised between microcosm and macrocosm, containing one, sensing the other, comprehending both. (laughs) Yes. What What are you saying there? Well, I'm saying that I guess that I that by understanding the world better and uh, that you gain a new perspective on what you are and a different feeling about uh, your place in reality and uh, that's more realistic, also richer and and uh, has a, there's good news and there's bad news. Right, I mean, it's, but, con- but, it's challenging, right? Case, it's confusing. It's something you can, uh, <laughs> by by, uh, by understanding it deeply, you can certainly enrich your experience of uh, of the life you're given. Yeah. You um you also cite somewhere what you say is for you one of the most beautiful passages in literature from the 20th century physicist Hermann Hermann Weyl. Weyl. Yes. On space-time, like he's talking about space-time from a God's eye view, the yes. objective world simply is. It does not happen. Only yes. to the gaze of my consciousness crawling along the lifeline of my body does a section of this world come to life as a fleeting image in space which continually changes in time. That's... That's a very, it's almost a mis, you know, it's almost a mystical image. Uh, it's a, you know, that the world is, yes. it does not happen is, is a quite a remarkable thing to try to take in. Yes, but it's, it's really, I think, very much what the, uh, the theory of relativity suggests. And the theory of relativity, it's really basic to, to uh, think of space-time as a whole. Because there are relationships uh, between things that happen in different parts of space and at different times that would be very, very that are significant in forming the laws and and the regularities of, of, of the world that would be that are very, very difficult and awkward to express if you carve the world into time slices as right, we past, experience present, future. and regard them as separate and 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 unrelated or. You know, as kind of snapshots, each each a thing in itself. Uh, the, the space relativity teaches us to, to uh, think of space time as a whole, and that it's very unnatural to divide them. So it leads, I think, uh, very much to the worldview that that Herman Weyl was alluding to there. That the wor- the world that is space time, it simply is. It does not happen. It's already encompasses all times. But so this idea that that is in you know is is in our spiritual traditions, um, but not that we don't feel in our bodies. <laughs> yes, right. That well, we, we somehow need to to separate to see the past and the future and the present as although we actually know we're actually a feel learning. We're learning on all kinds of different levels, scientific and otherwise, in the twenty first century to try to step beyond just that sensory um yes that most that in, instinctive we humans have the, yes. the fate which is a gift that we can get beyond uh our 
the limitations that nature uh, kind of imposed, mm-hmm. that evolution imposed on us. We, we really can get beyond that uh, by thought. We, we have the gift of being able to understand things and go deeper and get beyond common perceptions. We can use instruments. We can use logic. We can uh, learn from each other and traditions. And, and uh, there are many surprises that get revealed. Yeah. And it just enormously uh, deepens life yeah. to uh, participate in that. You... Um I listened to an interview you gave on the BBC. It was actually a music program. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. Was it lovely? Oh, well, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you don't, have, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to quote oh, back. Oh, I know. Yes, yes. I know what you mean. Yes. yes. Where we went through different favorite pieces different of music. Different pa- favorite pieces of music. And at one point you said, um, you quoted Newton. I think you were quoting Newton. That, 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 that how he said he felt kind of at some point in his life is how you feel. It was like an analogy of feeling like a boy on a beach. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, well, it's a very striking quotation of he, Newton, and I think uh, very sincere on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made extraordinary discoveries uh, in foundations of the physics of his time, uh, but he also had many uh, investigations in theology, uh, in what we now call chemistry, but really was more like alchemy at that time, uh, that, uh, that uh, he fully realized did not uh, get to the bottom of things, that, he, that, that there were loose ends and things that, that didn't, uh, didn't work, especially in the chemistry. Uh, so he said that, I don't, I think I can quote it close to literally, he said, I know not how I appear to the world, but to myself I appear like a boy on a beach who came upon some particularly uh, uh, beautiful pebbles while the great ocean of the unknown uh, lay before me. Uh, So he realized that he understood some things very well, and he he understood what it meant to really understand something, but at the part of that is realizing that you don't understand a lot of things, and, and it, it, there's uh, there's a profound humility that comes from from really understanding something, because then you meet you not you understand what it means to really understand something, mm. and uh, the kind of woolly, less satisfactory, less full understanding that we have to sati- have to settle for in many domains. Uh, you realize how much is missing; that is different. Uh, Another quotation that's related to that that I really love is from Olaf Stapleton, the, the, uh, the great uh, science fiction writer. He put this in the mouth of uh, Odd John, which is his Superman character, who's talking to the, his human uh, friend. And uh, Odd John says, uh, you are the Archaeopteryx of the spirit. And I think that's true. We humans can mm. can sort of, we're good enough, we can do a few things, we can understand what it might mean to fly, but we don't actually fly very well. <laughs> and you feel, you feel that way as a physicist at this yes. juncture in physics, which is so far from what Newton could have imagined also. Yes, we've done very, very well. 
No, physics, physics is pretty good. <laughs> physics, we've attained <laughs> a high level, although there are certainly big, uh, big holes in our understanding. Yeah. Of, you know, most of the mass of the universe we don't really, haven't really identified. But we've, we've you know, obviously made enormous strides in understanding the world, and we can support very elaborate technologies. We can make iPhones. We can detect gravitational waves and so forth and so on. Uh, but... You know, when we when it comes to the mind, when it comes to understanding society, when it, uh, our understanding is much much less satisfactory, and uh, yeah, I'm fully aware of that. There's this the very end of of, of uh, a beautiful question. It's an I think it's another. Um, it's actually this is another piece of complementarity that you. You end with, and kind of, it's kind of, you know, it's the ultimate, uh, one of the big uh, quandaries, uh, puzzles of human life. You know, you say the physical world embodies beauty. The physical world is home to squalor, suffering, and strife. In neither aspect should we forget the other. It's kind of, it's kind of. That's a, actually a very. It's almost like a. It's not a haiku, but it's it's a very condensed way of describing what you just said about what we're capable of and and the complexity yeah. of that. So, right. So we we, uh, you know, human beings have done many wonderful things, but they've also done many awful things. <laughs> Uh, and all we can do is try to expand on the former and uh, minimize the latter. And, um, but thinking about science and what we've achieved in science and art and how it fulfills the strivings of the past and how it's brought us so many surprises and so much power, I think is, is definitely one of the positive aspects of human experience. Mm. So just, my, just in closing, I... I wonder if you could just start to talk about how would you begin to reflect on, you know, through the science you've done, and especially I think this focus on your sense of beauty and beauty as a guide, as a litmus test. You know, how, how do you think you move through life differently? You know, ordinary space and time, the flawed way we perceive it. Uh, how does this change you, affect you in ways that you can... See, well, I think it's made me much more tolerant <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because uh, so many things that bother a lot of people seem trivial to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the lesson of complementarity, the idea that you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, it's very, very helpful in kind of in dealing with the human comedy. And yeah, that your truth may people. be true and my truth is true and that can just be. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, and I can appreciate you for what you are, uh, even if you're annoying. <laughs> I, can, I can have the fun of trying to understand where you're coming from, and even if I don't approve of it. You know, it's just it, it, uh, having a wider view and a, an expanded mind. Uh, but then also another you know, very important thing is that several hours a day, I get to think about how beautiful the world is and how it might be made even more beautiful mm-hmm. by enriching our understanding of it. So that's a very special gift, and I'm very uh, grateful that I've been, I've, uh, you know, Society has paid me to do this, and I'm, <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been uh, able to do it, and, and that I've had some talent and been able to do it in a successful way in some cases. Yeah. 
I think that that sense of fun and delight, um, you know, it's not an austere beauty. I mean, I know there's austere beauty in mathematics, but a lot of what you've been describing, it's 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 passionate and uh, whimsical. Um, I think that's an yes. That, well, think, people have right? different styles, but mine yeah. is yes, mine is that way. I'm a sunny kind of personality. Yeah, and, uh, but I don't think that's uh, yeah. a way people think of a Nobel Prize winning physicist, right? You know, it's... It, it's uh, well, I know enough about Nobel Prize winning <laughs> physicists to know that they come in all shapes and sizes. Okay. And, you know, they don't have... They don't have all that much in common, except not even intelligence. <laughs> but, but, uh, but uh, yeah, but but all of them have in common that a, a certain kind of uh, honesty and a certain kind of uh, community, and they've all contributed in some significant way to to human. And do you uh, think they all knowledge and culture and understanding? Do you think yeah. they all have some sense of beauty? As a, as some kind of guiding principle, even if they wouldn't express it exactly the way you do. Yeah, some of them aren't really aware of it, but, but they uh, <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That that's um, you have yes. Yeah. I I think you have to at some level in some form uh, have the feeling for. Uh, how things might be different and better in order to make a great discovery. Mm. I think mm. you, can, you can be lucky, but even if you're lucky and stumble into something, you've got to realize that it's something and, and mm. that you should pursue it. And, that's, uh, and that is usually driven by some feeling for beauty and mm. that this thing is significant, that this thing uh, fits into a larger picture. Uh, and... You know, making a discovery is not just stumbling into something. It's realizing that you've got it and bringing it to the world. And, and, and that requires a perception of its beauty. I, li- I liked the dedication to your book, To My Family and Friends, Beautiful Answers of the Second Kind. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what that Thank means. You. And I'd love to know just, uh, this is a huge question, but just how you'd begin talking about it. This really is the last question. Um, you know, what what you not just what you know what you continue to learn about through this entire life you live and what everything you think about about what it means to be human well i try to keep expanding my sphere of uh of knowledge and and experience uh in very concrete ways i mean in in writing this book and in some of my further adventures in recent months I've developed an interest, for instance, in visual art that I didn't really have before. Mm. And it's come to mean a lot to me. Earlier, uh, you know, when I was into early adulthood, I uh, developed my knowledge of music and my experience of music much more deeply. Uh, I'm thinking about taking up juggling. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of things that I'd love to do that I haven't done, yeah. and I look forward to doing them. Yeah. Uh, they sound, it sounds trivial, but I think it's really important to keep expanding your experience, not only by thinking about new scientific theories, but, but in other ways. And, uh, uh, yeah, I plan to keep doing that as long as I can. And beautiful answers of the second kind. And making new friends, yeah. And, uh, 
you know, making new friends is a very important activity to mm-hmm. me. There are different kinds of friends. Most of my friends in the past have been uh, colleagues at some level, plus mm-hmm. family. But now I'm, I'm meeting artists, I'm meeting uh, musicians and uh, some business people. And it, it's, I'm expanding my uh, uh, circle, and, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been— Radio, radio, <laughs> radio uh, uh, celebrities and personalities. <laughs> it's, it's, it's marvelous to meet yeah. new people, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just thoroughly enjoyed this, and I, your book is so beautiful. And uh, oh, thank you. And I really thank look you. It's forward. It's meant a lot to me, and I, I really. Uh, it's a, it's a, it came from the heart. Yeah. Well, and I look forward to sh- sharing it with other people, and I, I think, um, it's, it's always, a, I love, um, I love I, people. People love to talk about these things, although they don't understand them. But I think what you've You've been you're so articulate in actually creating entry points, right, where people don't have to understand <laughs> special <laughs> relativity to 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 uh, benefit from insights and discoveries. Oh, I of agree. Science, I deeply right? agree with that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we don't insist that people take courses in art history before we admit them to art museums. Right, or that they and, have to understand music <laughs> theory to love music. Right. Right. Exactly. But I think so, we're I think I, we are kind of collectively developing a vocabulary to speak about science. And in this way as part of culture and as part of the human inheritance. Yes, um, right? I think so. And I think mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing. And you're thing. part and, of that. And it's, it's a very important thing because our you know, modern life, technology, culture is based on science. But more than that, it's just a great opportunity to expand your mind. And we've learned mm-hmm. so many beautiful, surprising things about the world. It's a pity not to... Uh, not to experience them and enjoy them and learn about them. Well, and it's so thrilling when you do. Just to understand yeah. a little bit is thrilling. So thank you for, for your work. And well, thank you. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. And right. well, we'll, good luck with it. <laughs> we'll let you know when we're putting it on the air. We'll, you'll be fully informed. And, uh, uh, yeah, just, I, can, I look forward to continuing to read you and follow you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And I, uh, it's feelings mutual. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.